most importantly gave people permission to like there's nothing wrong with you if you have a a day that's a one 30 years from now it's your kid and grief doesn't give a flying bleepity bleep about (laughs) (laughs) what we think our timeline should be or we think somebody else's timeline should be it just it just comes up on you sometimes you don't often see it coming in a world where the depths of grief often remain unspoken melissa and monroe emerges as a remarkable voice of solace and inspiration a devoted mother acupuncturist and the author behind the captivating blog mothering in memoriam Melissa has fearlessly chronicled her journey through the heart-wrenching landscape of child loss, offering a beacon of light for those traveling similar paths. Her unwavering commitment to healing, growth, and the search for meaning has not only shaped her own life, but has touched the hearts of countless others. As a compassionate host of the podcast, This Club Sucks, grief support for parents after the lasagnas are long gone, Melissa opens up profound discussions about the elaborateness of grief and the transformative power of resilience. Her ability to create a safe space for parents navigating the unimaginable speaks volumes about her empathetic nature and genuine desire to provide unwavering support. Melissa M. Monroe's memoir, A Mom's Search for Meaning, eliminates the extraordinary strength that arises from the depths of grief. With directness and vulnerability, she delves into the complexities of loss and the often untold stories of growth that follow. Her words have become a lifeline, reaching out to those who have known the unbearable weight of child loss and offering a roadmap to hope, understanding, and the profound search for meaning. It is with great honor and anticipation that we invite you to delve into the depths of wisdom of a remarkable person who has turned her pain into purpose and emerged as a beacon of strength, resilience, and hope for all those who have faced the unimaginable. Welcome, Melissa. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited for you and and honored to be here. Yes. I started reading the first chapter a few days ago, Mm -hmm. and oh my gosh. So, like, I'm not, like, I'm trying to get back into reading, Mm -hmm. and it takes very few books that really like captivate me from the mm-hmm. beginning mm-hmm. but your book like the first it was the first chapter i was like oh my gosh mm-hmm. i'm like you got me we have a few questions okay so question number one is what motivated you to write this memoir about your grief and your growth after losing your own child it's a great question um motivate is maybe well, I guess I was motivated, but I was so shell-shocked when I started writing. The very first thing I wrote after Alice died was uh, a eulogy, basically, for her, for our neighborhood mom's club had a newsletter, and they wrote and said, we want to dedicate our next month's newsletter to Alice, and we're going to ask other moms to send in their remembrances, and, which was very sweet. And of course, I said yes. But then I started to really worry. I was a working mom, and so I wasn't able to go to most of the mom's events. And we were relatively new to the neighborhood at the time. And I thought, oh, my God, none of them know her. 
well and well enough. And so I wrote them back and said, can I write something also? And they said, of course, because when you lose a kid, you're most, and I think this is pretty universal. I've, I've not really spoken to a bereaved parent who didn't, who wasn't crippled with the fear that their child would be forgotten or that their life wouldn't have meaning because it was cut short. And so that, that need to have your child remembered, it is just burns in you. So I wrote, it's called Thank You, Alice, and it's on my blog, Mothering in Memoriam. I wrote that and I was shocked how good it felt to write it, mainly because my brain was super broken. Uh, as anyone who's been through any kind of major trauma knows, your, your brain ain't right. You know, I, I would forget I had to go to the bathroom on the way to the bathroom, not I wouldn't know why I was in the hallway and then I'd leave the hallway. Oh, I had to go to the bathroom. Like, how did I forget I had to go to the bathroom? But my brain was so broken. And I think the act of writing really helps my prefrontal cortex, which shuts down in a trauma, get back on board. And it just also felt really good to remember her. And I also thought, oh, I can string a sentence together. At the time, I could barely talk. Like, Truly, I could bar barely speak. And when I did speak, I found it exhausting. And so it, it helped all of those things. And then because we don't know why Alice died still to this day and definitely didn't know then, and it was a massive surprise to everyone that knew us, I knew that everyone wanted to know what, know what happened. I knew everyone wanted to know how I was doing, but I couldn't really talk and I could barely string a sentence together. And so after I released Thank You, Alice, and I received so many beautiful notes of hundreds and hundreds of notes of support, I thought, well, I'll just keep going and I'll write one called What Happened and put that on the blog also. Because everyone that came to see me that wanted to support me, and Lord knows I needed the support, had the same look of like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what the, uh, I, don't, I don't know. And I, this is not a judgment. I would have had the exact same look because we're grief inept at our society. We don't, no one's, we know more about how our phones work than how our emotions work. And most of us don't really spend any time contemplating death or grief unless we have to. And I wanted the help and I was appreciative of their willingness to do it but I wasn't really in a position to hold their hand through my tragedy because I was a mess. <laughs> I was really not, my brain was broken. So I thought, well, I'll just write it down. And then they can read it if they want to read it. They don't have to read it if they don't want to read it. And, but it's there. And then I don't have to tell the story a thousand times, which was becoming traumatizing. Now, after a lot of trauma therapy, I know that recounting the story over and over and over again is traumatizing but i was i was i felt that i was very aware of that in the moment and then again i got a lot of support and a lot of people started writing saying i haven't lost a kid but when i lost my dad i felt this way and this thing you said really helped me and i thought oh it <laughs> I just thought I was saving my own ass. I didn't know. <laughs> like it didn't occur to me that I could save anyone else's ass too. Um, but if I'm 
helping myself and I'm remembering my child and I am helping even one other person, then I must keep going. And so I did. Yeah. And I noticed in the first few chapters how you kind of like went over that crazy weight it was to physically call somebody up and tell them what had just happened and how you can only do a few people are just like, really yeah, I think I did like four total. Wow. I did my parents and then other people took over because they couldn't. Because everyone had the same right. They're like, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Which, again, not this is not a judgment. This is totally under. I mean, she was. I had just sent all these people videos of her. Our, they were still getting videos appearing on their phone <laughs> when they got the call. So I, I get no judgment to the reaction, but I couldn't. I couldn't just keep saying Alice is dead and we don't know why. Again, I couldn't do it. So my friend Bubba, who um, and Ray. Uh, they're a married couple, my children's godfathers. They uh, they kind of took over the, the calls. And then there were a couple of people that I realized I was going to have to tell myself. Um, another friend who had lost her child the same way. I thought I have to tell her. They'll, they'll think it's, a, you know, <laughs> the chances of it happening to two people in the same even wide circle are very slim because it's a SUDC, sudden unexplained death in childhood, is extremely rare. Um, and maybe one or two other people I called, but for the most part, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And you said that you had some clients coming to you around the time who, like, grief clients as well. Was that with, like, acupuncture? Or yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So with acupuncture, I see patients for all kinds of reasons, but I, I always joke that they come for the pain, but they stay for the psychology. Um, <laughs> they come for the back pain and then they stay because, oh, it's helping my insomnia or my repressed anger or uh, the way I want to strangle my mother or whatever it is. And um, uh, so, yeah, at the time, I think I had five different patients coming to me specifically for grief. And while I always had one, or maybe two, I'd never had five. So that was really odd. And in retrospect, it very much seems, and by back up, two of them had lost daughters. And, uh, and one lost her daughter the exact same way that I did with the chances of that are, you know, getting struck by lightning or winning Powerball, like yeah. a very, very small chance of that happening. So in retrospect, it feels like the, the universe was preparing me somewhat. Can you share any of the key messages or lessons that you hope the readers will take away from your memoir? Yes. I, I, the main thing that I hope that I hope people take away is hope. Uh, I hope that most people will not lose a child. Uh, I hope that no one ever, I, I would wish it on literally no one, uh, not, the, not the worst person in the world. I wouldn't w wish it on anyone. But we will all go through some things that turn our world upside down if you live long enough. And it can feel overwhelming and like things will never get better. And, um, and you will always feel the loss, but you can still have a meaningful, 
and beautiful life. How did the process of writing this memoir help you in your own journey of healing and finding meaning after loss? I would say it was instrumental. Um, if I had to choose four pillars of my sanity, um, and there's, there's probably really five, I needed an extra pillar. <laughs> no, no one's going to deny me that, I don't think. Uh, but writing was definitely one of the pillars. Um, my community uh, was another pillar. Uh, yoga and meditation, another pillar. Uh, laughter, another one. But and there's a fifth that'll probably come out as I keep shooting my <laughs> mouth off. But uh, writing was really instrumental. You know, a lot of therapists will tell you that you have to, in order to heal from stuff like this, you have to be able to create a narrative around the undesirable event. And writing did that for me. Um, some people paint, some people draw, some people write music some people start foundations which is you know a creative act in and of itself there's many ways that we can do that but writing really worked for me and it also like i said solved the other problem of i couldn't really talk at the time and i didn't want to turn people away just because i couldn't talk because i knew i needed the support and i also knew that the amount of support that comes in at the beginning in the early days of a trauma that doesn't last long yeah. and and frankly you need it more down the road the shock is a really amazing buffer in the beginning but as the shock wears off and the people aren't coming around <laughs> with the lasagnas as much anymore that's when stuff really starts to get hard and that's when your your core group matters and that's when it's really important that people know how you're doing because they want to help, but they don't know how. And if they're not hearing from you, you know, they don't know what to do. So it really it helped me create a narrative around the unthinkable. It helped me, it gave me a voice when I couldn't speak. And it, and it eased my mind that Alice was being remembered. So it did three really key things for me. And you said, oh, and oh. I was creating and I was helping other people in her name. So I was creating a legacy for her. She was only two. So she didn't get to do that for herself. And I like how you mentioned your previous, your childhood and how reading was kind of like always a big part of your core. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think that's kind of beautiful how that purpose, it was so evident in the early stages and how you're able to just like take that tool of reading and words just with you through so much. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was the kid with the flashlight under the <laughs> covers after bedtime. It's probably why I needed glasses. Right? Why does she need glasses at seven? Well, maybe because <laughs> she's under the cover with a shitty flashlight <laughs> reading when she's supposed to be sleeping. <laughs> maybe. So what were the most challenging aspects of revisiting your emotions and memories while writing? You know, it, I didn't find it difficult, to be honest. 
Uh, and that is not to say that I didn't yeah. make myself cry at times. Um, I, I was kind of surprised. I, I cried very little while I was writing it. Um, and the couple of times I did kind of surprised me, but some of my friends who are writers are like, I mean, you're making yourself cry and you already know the story that like, you're on the right track. Like then like imagine how moving it's going to be to someone that doesn't know the story. Um, so I didn't really find it diff difficult. Do you, do you know the story of the red shoes? It's a ballet about some red shoes and when she, when she puts on the red shoes she can't help but dance and she ends up dancing herself to death because you know germans <laughs> and they're, and they're story. <laughs> or maybe it's right and they're, and they're story. <laughs> or maybe it's russian one of the two they're it's often a tragedy at the end but i i, I felt very red shoesy about it like it felt like something i had to do it was in my bones and I've, I've not felt like that very many times in my life. I've had lots of things I've wanted to do and I've done them or I've at least attempted to do them. Um, I've done things I didn't really want to do, but I did them anyway. But I have not often in my life felt compelled to my bones to do something. And whenever I have, sometimes I don't find out why it was necessary for years, but it always ends up making sense. And this was something. I, I felt like I had to do. So I didn't find it particularly difficult, to be honest. And in trauma, one of the problems is it the it plays in your head over and over and over again to the point where, you know, flashbacks and this kind of thing to where you can't engage in the present fully. And so in a way, I was helping myself without realizing it by getting it out of the part of your brain where the trauma gets stuck, which is the, the emotional brain, the midbrain, and having to use my prefrontal cortex, your executive functioning, to, to ride it out. Um, I didn't realize at first that I was doing that. It took a while because, again, my brain was totally broken. I was just trying not to die, basically. But um, so I, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't find it difficult. But the, like, trying to book marketing and all that kind of stuff is not as fun. <laughs> like, I don't like that part but the, <laughs> at all. But the, I, I like this, but I don't like, you know, the, like, the tech part of it or yeah. like that, that, that can all go away. I don't, I don't care for that at all. I just want to be with my quill and my lambskin and, <laughs> and talk to people in a salon. That would be great. But um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't find it difficult. I felt it, I found it helpful and still do. And I'll never regret it. Even if I only sell one copy of this book and if only one person ever reads it, I will never regret doing it. And how long was the writing process? Well, a long, a while because I didn't, I didn't set out to write a book yeah. per se. Uh, I, I was just doing a, a blog just to kind of keep people updated, but the blog ended up taking on a life of its own, which I didn't expect. I, I thought our family and friends would read it. I would save my breath. It would help people remember Alice. But started getting like a lot, a lot of views and engagement. And uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. And lots of notes from like 55-year-old single guys saying, 
oh, this thing that were friends of mine that, you know, are like eternal kids, basically. Oh, this thing you said really helped me when my father died. And I was like, text reads my mom. Like, what? I I was just shocked by who, by who communicated to me that it helped them. So I kept going. And then I had a couple of, or three friends in particular that kept nagging me, like, has to be a book, has to be a book, this has to be a book. Uh, my friend Liz Friedlander, who's a director, uh, I said, I don't think, I don't have enough for a book yet, but, you know, I will one day. And she said, do me a favor and print up everything you've written that's for the blog and then all those things you've said you've written, but you weren't sure if they fit in the blog yet or if you want to do some just print it all up and tell me what you got well i had 799 pages which is way yeah, i was like oh my god i would rather have like not enough like now i've got to kill 500 pages wow. of darlings to like have a a book and then i let myself be overwhelmed by that for a little bit and then uh my friend Teresa strasser who's an on-air personality and um has written a couple books. In fact, her book "Making It Home" is out right now. Is like number one in grief. She's she's doing great. Uh, she said, "Just start sending me chapters. Like, take what you've got, figure out the lens you want to tell the story through, and start sending me chapters." And so she developmentally edited the book. And the once I decided it was going to be a book, I would say that took, that process took about a year and a half, and then it took about another year to figure out whether I was going to traditionally publish or self-publish. And um, yeah, so not long uh, once I decided I was yeah. going to do a book. I love how that you um, what was started out was just a tool for yourself and like almost like a communicator for your family and friends. Really, just blossomed into this huge tool for like not just people losing kids, but people losing everyone, just lost in general. Like you really like created this light for anybody. Like Aww. witnessing grief. And that is so cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if we live long enough, we're all going to experience grief. It is the, it is possibly one of the only experiences that we will, that everyone will share. And we, we don't talk about it enough. And we often don't, examine our own relationship to death and grief until until we're flailing in the abyss which is i, I would argue it's better to have a little bit <laughs> a, a, a little bit of an idea and spend some time before you're in the abyss yeah. is yeah. is very helpful and it also makes you better friends like it it, it makes your friendships and your relationships stronger when they know that you can handle that kind of talk and 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 you feel safer obviously with someone that isn't scared of you that was one thing that happened afterwards it became very clear especially right after when i would walk into a room the entire temperature of the room would change and it became very clear again i'm not judging these people it's just None of these people are, are bad. It's, ju it's just how it is. Um, but the whole temperature of the room would change. And I could tell 
Oh, I, I'm the, I'm the living, breathing poster child of these people's worst nightmares, and I'm just me standing here, not saying a word, reminds them that they're mortal. People they love are mortal, and even their kids are mortal. And that was that was heavy. That was a because that's a profound. It it was as if people experienced that I had had an enormous identity change when I I hadn't really. I mean, yes, in, in some ways I had. I was a mother of one instead of two. I, I still feel like I'm a, the mother of two. I just can't touch one. But the perception of my identity change was far outweighed what was happening inside and, and wasn't emblematic. Is this making any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of felt I write about this in Mom's Search for Meaning. I It made me wonder if it's like what famous people go through. Not, not that I'm <laughs> comparing, you yeah. know, I'm not going to get famous from the this book for sure but they they're the same person yeah. they just you know they ended up after grinding away for 12 years on you know commercials they hated and work that they didn't want to tell anybody that they were doing and being an extra and small roles suddenly some show takes off and then everyone treats them differently and i've, I've always thought that had to be really a a, 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 like a real head trip to experience that. And it kind of felt like that. Like my daughter died and it's horrible, but the perception and, and the way I could feel the room would stop when I walked in was, was heavy. And so I thought, well, if I keep, it's because we don't talk about these things. It's because people don't talk about it. And we were uncomfortable Somehow our, our culture got the, the message that we're supposed to be happy and pleasant and feel awesome all the time. And that's just not, it's not true and it's not going to happen. And if we're not prepared for otherwise, and you're always mad at life. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And you addressed that in one of your chapters. Um, Remind me how exactly how it went, but people were worried whether they should be crying or whether they should yes. not be crying. And yeah. like, I don't care what you do. Yeah, you can cry or not cry. <laughs> <laughs> My kid died. I'm going to cry. <laughs> and if you want to yeah. cry too, yeah. uh, great. If you don't want to cry, but like, don't worry that you crying or not crying is going to affect me. And also there was a, people were worried that if they said her name, it would remind me. <laughs> I, uh, I wrote a piece called I Did Not Forget Her, which is on my blog, Mothering in Memoriam. It's not in the book. Um, titled, it's more like a poem, but it's entitled I Did Not Forget Her. And it's maybe my favorite thing that I've ever written. And I don't know that I had a lot to do with it. It was one of those things that just came like whoosh. And I would, yeah. I just felt like the scribe for something out yeah. oh, like I can't work that fast <laughs> 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 something whooshed through me to make that thing happen but you you crying or not crying you saying her I she's my child I'm never gonna forget her mm -hmm. you know and uh ever never 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 so you you, you can't remind me of it you can't make me cry her 
dying for no reason made me cry. They're not being here to take to Disneyland or sit in this beautiful park is what makes me cry. Like, you can't cry. There was a small period where I interneted, where I internet dated um, a few years afterwards, after my, after Alice died and we got divorced. And <laughs> there, many men said, oh, you know, I'm just afraid I will hurt you. And it was really hard not to laugh. Like, <laughs> dude. <laughs> you're a dude. <laughs> you're just, no offense, but you're just some dude I met on the internet that I've known for an hour. <laughs> you can't hurt me. I have lived in hell. <laughs> you are innocuous to, to me. There's nothing you can, you yeah. can do. You would have to know me a lot longer and a lot. Um, but yeah, so there's some, there was some of that. And again, no judgment to, the, to these people. I, I get it. I, I get not knowing. And there are some people that don't want to talk about their child afterwards. I would say that is the vast minority, though. And among the moms, I know I would, I can't, I can't think of a mom. And I've met thousands that doesn't, that isn't dying to talk about her child. Did you encounter any unexpected discoveries or realizations during the writing of the memoir? And if so, what were they and how did they shape your perspective? I would say the, the, the thing that was most unexpected was that I, I, I didn't really at first realize I was searching for meaning and purpose but I was like immediately, like within, within a couple hours of, of her dying, it was already happening if I look back. And I guess the thing that was most surprising is in, is in the title. Like I, I realized that I was creating and finding the meaning that I was creating simply by engaging in that search. Does that make sense? Like it's not, yeah. the meaning wasn't over there. Yeah. The meaning was in the excavating, trying to, the meaning was in the, the journey, not the destination. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I loved how you wrote about it. Um, in those passing hours, you said something about like, how, how this was such a big changing moment in your life and how, even the person you were a few hours ago just feels so different to the person that you are now in this moment. Yeah, I, it, was it was hard to even connect that for, for a while. Um, I took a lot of trauma, specifically trauma therapy and EMDR. Uh, time, like one of the main themes in the book is, is how trauma affects your perception of time it's why i set up the it's just how i was writing and then i realized i oh i'm writing in this order where like one chapter is a day and then one chapter and after a few days the chapter could be a week and then a season and a year but that's just also kind of how you process trauma in the beginning it a, a day could be seven chapters because you're the shock and the trauma 
you're taking you're taking in all of the information and as time goes by you can process a week in a chapter and yeah. and so forth but the um at first time felt like little individual capsules that weren't related to anything in the past or the future i think that most of us whether we realize it or not go through life even if no matter how present in the moment we think we are we are still seeing the moment as a continuum of the past to the present like i'm here and i'm enjoying here and this happened because trevor and i made a plan in the past and that happened because i started going so we're experiencing it through that and in the future then this podcast will come out and maybe someone will be helped so for the most part we are experiencing even when we're as now as we think we can get we are experiencing those moments on a continuum you know yeah. and that's not how it felt when it, everything felt like an individual bubble that had nothing to like I could have been in 1399 or 2458 like it nothing felt connected time wise yeah. it was really um you know, it was trippy. <laughs> it felt like being on drugs. <laughs> you mentioned it was like three days ago. You're like, I felt like years ago. Like, how was I even three yes. days ago? Yeah, they're like, oh, so and so wants to help. And I was like, oh, I don't know them all. And I, we, I haven't seen them in forever. And I, I couldn't impose. You, you were at their house three days ago. Whoa. I, it didn't feel like that. Like, that, ha that stuff like that happened so much at yeah, time felt like little capsules that weren't that wasn't connected to anything else and uh that has gone away which makes it easier to function in the world and have a job <laughs> and like an appointment-based business but in a way it was really kind of amazing to live like that for a while where, where i wasn't so bound by time mm. um and I was definitely more creative and productive. Not, you know, like I've never worn a watch, ever. Uh, I got a nice watch from my college graduation from my parents. And I wore it for a little while. And I was so excited. Like, I felt so grown up. I got my watch. And I was like, oh, I feel bound by time. Like, I did not like it. And this is what, you know, I'm old. So this is like way before even pagers. This was like, there was no cell phones like you had to like look for a clock on the wall or have a watch at the time and i thought uh, oh you know i so i've kind of never liked being bound by time and when i was in my 20s on sundays i uh i had a, i've always had appointment based i've always had an appointment based business and even when i did medical research still everything is you know per, the timing of everything is has to be precise because people's lives depend on it so I, I realized that that was a great way to stay productive during the week, but it was kind of messing me up creatively and just like as a person, like I that didn't want to feel like a robot for every part of my life. So on Sundays, I would turn all the again before cell phones, um, and maybe maybe I had a pager by then, but I would turn all the clocks upside down, and I would on Sundays 
like my only goal was to not know what time it was and make no plans because if I made a plan, I would have to have a time. And oftentimes I ended up doing something, but it would be because my friend Kim called and said, Hey girl, we're going camping. Like, <laughs> all right, throw some shit in your truck and let's go. But, the <laughs> but I felt uh, just more alive that way. And so in many ways, that period of time I had when time felt like little capsules that weren't uh, connected was really freeing. I wish it would have come about by very different circumstances, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, so now, now, I, now I just want to figure out how to live like that, but still, you know, not be late for stuff you're supposed to show up for. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know how that goes. Okay, please do. <laughs> it's probably going to be challenging. <laughs> In your opinion. What are some of the misconceptions or stigmas surrounding the grieving process after child loss? And how can society better support grieving parents? So the misconceptions about child loss in, in particular or uh, grief in general? Let's say grief in general. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, I think the biggest and most dangerous misconception is that uh, there's a lot the griever has a lot of pressure to feel better from outside and then and then that happens inside and then what happens then is not only do you have grief which you know now like grief or the football game or grief or like no one's gonna you know everyone's gonna choose the bread and circus over the grief every time even though grief is love and football or you know the kardashians or whatever like people do in their <laughs> spare time like is not always love per, per se but most people are going to choose bread and circus over grief any day but what happens is when there's that pressure like oh you're not better yet or you're not feeling better yet or or then you start to direct it inwards i'm not feeling better yet there's something wrong with me then the grief gets linked it gets hooked to guilt the grief gets hooked with shame. The grief gets hooked with impatience and uh, unworthiness. Um, am, do I am I worthy to have this much grief for this person? Am I? And the answer is always yes. You're allowed to grieve however you need to. We don't have a society that's really fosters that, but you can start. You know creating your own little situation and uh, your, your own little community and, and select for people that know what it's like and will give you the space. And I'll, so I would say that's the biggest misconception is that there's a, that there's a timeline to feel better. Um, Joe Biden, I, and I know some people don't like Joe, some people love Joe, <laughs> This is not about Joe as a politician. This is about Joe as a as a father who's lost two children and his wife. Uh, he lost a baby, his baby daughter and his wife in a car crash right when after he was elected. And his two boys were seriously injured. He was sworn in in the hospital way back when. And then recently he lost his son, Bo. But he was addressing a room full of military families who had lost 
a, a child or a brother, or, you know, a, a core member of their family. And he gave some of the best advice that I've, that, that I've ever heard. I don't know that anyone can do it better. He said, you know, start ranking your days, start charting your days on a scale of one to 10. And I think on his scale, one is the worst and 10 is the best. He said, if you, if you mark every day, one through 10, over time, you will see that there are fewer ones, but there will always be ones, but they will become farther apart. I have chills. And I just thought that was the most sound advice I'd ever heard because it, it provided hope that not every day is going to feel as debilitating as it does in the beginning. In the beginning, you think this isn't really survivable. I think that it's not possible to live feeling this bad. Like it feels like it could physically make you sick. So it gave, it gives hope that it can get better and it won't be so intense, but it also gives those people permission to know that you're going to have days that are one. You're just gonna, and it's okay. It, it doesn't, there's nothing wrong with you. If you have a day that's a one 10 years out or 20 years out or 30 years out. And I, I just thought it was so fair and so sound and so helpful. And most importantly, gave per people permission to like, there's nothing wrong with you. If you have a, a day, that's a one 30 years from now, it, it's your kid. And grief doesn't give a flying bleepity bleep about <laughs> what we think our timeline should be or we think somebody else's timeline should be. It just, it just comes up on you sometimes. You don't often see it coming. And uh, I don't know if I could give any better advice than that. I just, that, that's the best advice I've ever heard. I'm so glad that you took the time to come here and be here oh thank you. No, thank you i'm so glad that you're yeah. doing this this is yeah. a wonderful thing and people people need it and people need more open conversations about the stuff that we feel like we have to hide but that's where um i have found personally and in my friendships and from observing other friendships it's where the real magic happens and that's where real connection and real community and uh it's where the real stuff comes in yeah. you find you find the real ones when in the yucky stuff yeah. it's easy to find people yeah. when everything's hunky-dory <laughs> but <laughs> things aren't always hunky-dory so you you find you find beauty in the in the mud